All right, everyone, we are in Matthew 3, last four verses of this chapter before we move on to chapter 4 next week. And uh, just to recap here, just really generally, we're seeing that in this Gospel of Matthew, he's defining, Matthew is defining a way of righteousness that should characterize kingdom people. And that way of righteousness is not just right standing between ourselves and God. Obviously, that's super important. But that's a righteousness that actually is vertical and horizontal, that impacts the way we live, that impacts how we treat others. And we'll see Matthew develop this through the rest of the gospel, and especially in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which we are going to get to shortly. So Matthew, in this gospel, uh, is presenting us his theology so far of, of God, his nature and his character, his sovereignty, as we see in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He's giving us a picture of a, what, what it looks like when, uh, when the nature of God is, is confronted with sinful human nature as we come into proximity with Jesus Christ. Matthew gives us uh, a, a picture of what that looks like. We see that in the Magi, what happens when we humble ourselves and begin to walk in repentance, um, begin to surrender our kingdom to the kingdom of God and live for that. And in contrast, we saw in Herod what it looks like when our sinful nature rebels against God, when we assert our own kingdom over the kingdom rule of God and begin to confront it and, uh, and see that conflict in our lives. We see Jesus, the child, in Matthew 2 as the beginning uh, glimpse of Jesus being representative humanity. Jesus is God's vision for humanity under his rule. Humanity returning to its original mandate from Genesis, uh, you know, one, two, and three before the fall. This is what we begin to see in Jesus in chapter two. In chapter three, last week, we talked about John the Baptist being the living, breathing law of God, the walking law of God, the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, the fire of God. We see this in John the Baptist. We see that he represents everything that is leading up to Christ and, and the reality that there is no New Testament. There's no gospel without the law. There's no New Testament without the old. Je Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And we saw in John, he begins to give new meaning to what it means to walk in repentance and confession. And you can watch last week's if you want sort of the full definition for those. But John's definition for those things is very different than what would be, I think, common for many of us in our church lives today. And John is urgently calling them to change how they think, to change their opinions of what is necessary in life, of what is leading their life, to change how they're thinking and change how they're living. John is giving this urgent call as he's out in the desert. And then finally, we see John as the baptizer. 
and um, we're introduced to repentance, confession, and then baptism. And baptism, as we see it, is just the, uh, the, the picture of or, or the metaphor of dying to ourselves. And so let's just pick this up. The last few verses of Matthew 4, and we're going to talk about these as we close this chapter of Matthew, the baptism of Jesus. So we're starting Matthew 4, sorry, Matthew 3, verse uh, 13. All right, it says this. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and setting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And so we see in here this, this picture of baptism ending this sort of triad of principles, repentance, confession, and baptism. And John has been calling us to all three of these things. According to the Apostle Paul, baptism is a joining with Jesus in his death. It's a putting to death our right to rule our own kingdom. So according to Paul, the baptism and the way that we need to see this in the progression of John the Baptist in this picture of Jesus as the gospel is baptism is our willing surrender of our own kingdom. It is putting to death our own kingdom rule. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. I'm just going to read this for you. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, speaking of baptism still, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We see in this picture of Jesus' baptism, we see this, uh, this principle emerging of the kingdom of God that Jesus begins to teach on and to model and to live out further and further in his life. And this principle of the kingdom of God is we must be willing to surrender our kingdom for his. We must be willing to die to ourselves 
in order to be raised up to new life in him. And so we see in Matthew chapter 3 these fundamental theological issues for our life. These are for our everyday life. Our need to walk in biblical repentance, our need to walk in biblical confession. Remember, confession for John was not uh, just a personal, I want to talk to Jesus privately about this. Biblical confession and confession according to John by its very nature is public. Now, that doesn't mean that you stand up in church the next time we're uh, in the service together and you just kind of lay out everything from your life. It does mean, though, that you begin to bring into the light those things that are hidden in darkness. And it, it means that you begin to pray about or identify somebody in your life who you can trust. Begin to develop and build trust with that person, but commit yourselves to walking in the light with them, to bringing your whole life into the light. This is the kind of confession that John the Baptist is talking about. And finally, baptism, our dying to ourselves, our dying to our needs, our desires, our life being the thing that directs us. Instead, we need to actually lay that down, allow that to be crucified so that we can be raised up with Christ. I think it's easy or, or interesting when Jesus comes and you know, has this confrontation with his cousin John. John says, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. What are you doing? Why are you coming to me? I'm not the son of God. I'm not the lamb of God. I am not the Messiah. I'm a sinful, broken guy. And Jesus says to John, I want to just highlight this. Um, he says, it should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. So they have this interaction. John says, no, 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 this is reversed. It's got to be the other way. And Jesus insists, he said, it should be done. We must, in some of your translations, it may say we must fulfill all righteousness. We must do all that is required. We see Matthew here giving us a picture of the kingdom character of God and the kingdom character that is essential for the life of Jesus and for our life. And that kingdom character is humility. We should be astounded that Jesus got baptized at all because he didn't need to. Jesus had no sin to repent of. He had no dying to his flesh that needed to still happen. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. We should be astounded that he humbled himself, that he walked in obedience to the Father and entered into this, which would have been a humiliation for him. For the religious leaders looking on and the people that were spectating from all of the edges, this would have been a very humbling and humiliating ordeal for the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to subject himself to baptism, being baptized by John the Baptist, as great as he was, still a sinful human. 
John called Jesus the baptizer. John didn't even in his view of the Messiah have a category where the Messiah would be baptized. Bruner puts it this way in his commentary, John had predicted the Christ as a baptizer with spirit and fire. We talked about that last week. Not as a baptizee, not as a recipient of baptism. It's as if one were to announce the coming of a great preacher at a series of evangelistic meetings, and one night the preacher arrives, not at the platform, but at the altar. Not at the podium, but at the penitence bench. Not to preach, but to kneel. This is the picture we get. Jesus arriving on the public scene. This is the coming into the public of the Messiah. And he doesn't come as the great preacher here in this motif that Matthew's giving us. He doesn't come as the preacher with fire and brimstone. He comes as the one in humility, kneeling before the Father humbling himself and we see in this Matthew is 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 carving out our vision of the character of the kingdom of God that must characterize us which is humility humility is a foundational uh, part of kingdom culture and character and on the opposite side pride is the great obstacle to the kingdom of God that must be exposed in us to the consuming fire of God. God hates pride. He hates it. His word says that he opposes the proud. He literally stands against them, works against what they're trying to do in their pride, but he draws near to the humble. David in the psalm said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. The Bible also says that the proud God holds at a distance, far away from him, but the humble he allows near to himself. In Jesus' first act of public obedience to his Father, we see an example in our need through him to value humility in our actions. Jesus was obedient to the will of God, and he, in this moment, becomes, his first act of public ministry becomes the prototype and the model for all of us. Humility requires that we need to accept our need to change the way we think about our thinking. Again, if we just break this story down, John is saying, look, you're the baptizer. I, I've been preaching about you. I've been setting the stage for you. I've been preparing everyone for you, the baptizer, to come with fire and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus comes and says, no, you've got to change the way you're thinking about your thinking, John. The Messiah is not coming right now with fire and brimstone, with strength and power. He's coming with humility. You have to reorient how you think around the kingdom of God. And humility requires us to reorient how we think about our lives, how we interact with others and interact with God. 
Humility. If you're going to take some notes, this is probably the most important one that I'll say today. Humility cannot be directed only toward God. It must be lived out before others. There is no humility in your life and in my life that is reserved for our vertical relationship with God only. There is no humility unless it is lived out in the context of the relationships that we have. That's what Matthew is getting across. Jesus, as the one who submits himself to the will of the Father and agrees to be the one who is baptized, who lowers himself and humbles himself, is walking not just in humility theoretically in his heart with the Father, but it's being displayed in his interaction with others on the earth. Jesus said, it should be done. And what's interesting is that that response from Jesus is unique in Matthew. All four Gospels talk about the baptism of Jesus. And Mark was written before Matthew. Matthew most likely would have had access to the book of Mark to look at it. And so Matthew adds this sentence, this unique sort of um, purview into a little bit more of the interaction that happened between John and Jesus. Matthew adds this, and he's making a bold and profound theological statement that sets a standard for our living. If we want to follow the life of Jesus, if we want to live in the way of Jesus, humility must be a foundational principle for our life, not just humility before God in our hearts, but humility before man. Matthew's also drawing out in this statement of Jesus's where he says, we must do this to fulfill God's desire. Matthew's drawing out for us the principles of obedience and surrender. Jesus didn't need baptism, but he humbled himself in obedience to his father. He submitted himself to the desire of his father for his life. He didn't need to do it. There was no requirement for him to do it. Instead, he willingly submits himself in obedience to the father. Our pride says we don't need to do that. Our pride would say, I don't need to do that. That's not required of me. That's law. That's not grace. Our pride often says, we don't, I don't need to engage in any kind of spiritual disciplines or practice. I don't need to fast. I don't need to read scripture. I don't need to memorize scripture. I don't need to pray every day. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. Our pride says, I don't need to do that. But humility says, I may not need to do it but I want to do what brings glory to the Father. I want to do those things that open the door to deeper relationship with the Father. I want to do those things that please the heart of the Father. Pride looks for a, a legal loophole with which we can remove ourselves, come out from under sort of that weight of responsibility, but humility says, I will do 
what actually makes the Father come alive with joy for me. I will do the things that the Father values. It's in Jesus' baptism that he's telling the world, I want to do the will of God more than anything else. We have to just stop and just examine our lives. Have you been on this track or trajectory, even as you think about your own spiritual life right now? Have you been making all kinds of excuses for yourself of how you don't need to do this or that thing spiritually? How you don't need to have any regular disciplines in your life spiritually because they're legalistic or under the law? Have you been making that argument in your own heart and in your own head? I want to submit to you that when we begin to make that argument, I don't need to do this, God. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. I don't need to do this. I, I, I can engage in this because of grace. I don't need to withhold this from myself. I don't need to withhold this pleasure from myself because I'm under grace, not under the law. I don't want to be legalistic about it. I don't need to do that. When those words are formed in our thinking or come out of our mouth, I don't need to do that. I want to submit to you that it's pride in your heart that is driving that. Jesus is saying, I don't need to, but I want to. I want to do the will of God more than anything else. I want to do the will of God more then I want to preserve my image in front of my peers right now. I want to do the will of God more than I want to kind of define this spiritual legalistic argument and rationale for why I don't have to. I want to do the will of God more than I want to impress those around me, more than I, I, I want to be accepted by those in our culture today. I want to do the will of God more than I want to be approved by the voices of our culture and even those in our Christian culture who are demanding that the, that the gospel, demanding that scripture, demanding that our theology and our doctrine be reshaped around popular ideas of morality today. Matthew, in this statement alone, <laughs> I want to read it again. Jesus said, it should be done. I don't need to. I want to. I want to fulfill the desire of my Father more than tend to my own wishes or needs or desires right now. Bruner says again, the first thing Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity as in the church's teaching, he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. Jesus, at one moment with the human race, visible already here at baptism, is an impressive and important 
important, is as impressive and important for human salvation as Jesus is at one moment with the heavenly Father. What a, what a thought that Jesus' first act of public ministry is to be found in a river among sinners to be living out the kingdom principle of humility, not just in his heart, not just in his prayer life, not just in his thinking between himself and God, recognizing how, um, you know, how deeply he needs God and how deeply we are, uh, have a propensity for sin and how deeply sin is impacting our lives, but in front of other people, with other people, Jesus walks in humility. There is no humility in your life or mine that is only humility between us and God, not expressed in our human relationships around us. Andrew Murray, in his probably the seminal work on humility, he's got a book called Humility, the Beauty of Holiness. Andrew Murray says this, what a solemn thought that our love to God will be measured by our everyday intercourse with men and the love it displays. So Andrew Murray is saying love to others is actually a necessary functional component of our love with God. Like John says in 1 John, we cannot love God and claim we love him and not love others. Andrew Murray continues, and that our love to God will be found to be a delusion except as its truth is provided in standing the test of daily life with our fellow men. So he goes on to say, it is even so with our humility. It is easy to think we humble ourselves before God. Humility toward men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. I wanna repeat that line. Humility toward men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. So I wanna give you just a few thoughts on practicing humility, how we can begin to walk in humility before men, before the people that are most important to us in life. Number one, Practice not having the last word, especially, especially when you are right in your own eyes, especially when you feel someone needs a, a corrective way to think about something. Practice not having the last word. This is one way that we develop humility in practice. Two, Practice not defending yourself or justifying your actions. Practice not explaining and rationalizing why you said what you said or why you did what you did or why from your point of view, your actions were the way that they were. Practice not defending yourself and sometimes when we're entering into dialogue, what we need to say up front is, is, look, I'm not, I'm listening to you. I'm hearing what you're saying. 
but I actually want to practice humility with you, and so I'm not going to defend myself. But don't take my silence as a means of me just disregarding the importance of what you're saying. I was having a conversation with someone from our church a few weeks ago, and and they were bringing some concerns to me, some ways that I had hurt them in their life, some things that I had said that were hurtful or made them feel demeaned or diminished or devalued, and they weren't things that I intended to do or to be hurtful with, but I sensed the Holy Spirit say, as I was walking into that conversation, Andrew, I'm not giving you permission to defend yourself. Don't excuse your actions. Don't explain them away. Don't justify yourself. Just listen. And so I listened, and in that listening, uh, I was practicing humility. I could have made all kinds of excuses for myself, some that might have been justified even, but I sense God saying, you need to practice humility with this person and show your humility toward me as you humble yourself before this person. And I said to this person talking with me, I'm hearing you. I value and validate your feelings. And I'm sorry for your experience in this, but I just feel God calling me to listen to you and not to defend myself. So practicing humility, practice not having the last word, especially you guys. Practice not defending yourself, explaining the situation away justifying your your speech or your actions. Justifying is usually a way for us to to save our self-image or retain control of our environment or our situation. And it's often pride that's behind our desire to control our environment or maintain a, a specific image of ourselves that we want to uphold. Number three, Practice being the first to acknowledge your parts. Practice being the first to break the silence and say, I am going to own this is my part. I'm sorry for hurting you in this way, for grieving you. Practice being the first to acknowledge your part and not demanding or expecting anything of the other. Number four, practice placing the needs of others before your own. Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. When we practice placing the needs of others before our own, we begin to humble ourselves, prefer another ahead of ourselves, and walk in the kind of humility that Jesus exemplified in his baptism at the Jordan. So we move on in this story from here to this picture that Matthew's giving us of the open heaven, the dove, and the voice from the Father. Verse um, so whatever 16 there, after his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. The first thing that I think Matthew wants to bring to our attention, again, he's, he's contrasting and he's providing these biopic views of 
John the Baptist, the living, breathing, walking representative of the law and the fire of God, the demands of God over our lives, the John the Baptist who preached about and prophetically spoke of the Messiah who would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The same John earlier on in chapter three who said, look, the ax is at the root of the trees and he is going to cut down every tree that doesn't bear fruit and burn it in the fire. This is what John is talking about. And here we see in Jesus, the living, breathing gospel of God, that the spirit comes like a dove. Don't miss this. We've been talking about fire and judgment, repentance, confession, dying to ourselves, and the spirit doesn't come like the ax that John described, or the fire, or the shovel that's described. It doesn't come in strength and in power, he comes as a dove. The visual manifestation of the Spirit is not one of strength or external power. It is of gentleness that rests. We can't miss this today, especially as we are you know, walking through what we're walking through in our communities and in our culture as we are, you know, in this pandemic that never seems to end and we are being subjected to uh, decisions from people that we can't control, <laughs> government decisions. And, and our, our natural desire is to want to to assert strength and fight back and push back. And I hear people in the church calling the church to rise up and raise her voice. And I think that there is a place in our civic life and we're given permission from the government. We're given a, an avenue from the government to, to protest and to oppose government. But I, I don't want you to miss this. The character of the kingdom of God is not the expression externally of power and strength. The character, the character of the kingdom of God, when it comes and rests on Jesus, is of a dove. The gentleness and rest that comes from a dove. This is the visual manifestation of the kingdom of God. And we have to get this as the church today. Our power is not rooted in our ability to exert strength and to dominate and to use that as a symbol for you know, the work of God. The kingdom of God is opposite to the way the world works. The world says assert power and dominion and dominance overpower your enemy, pull down the oppressor, tear down you know, sinful and destructive systems in government and the kingdom of God says, my way is humility and gentleness. Jesus, the lion of Judah, comes here as the lamb in gentleness and the dove comes and rests on him in gentleness. This is the visual manifestation of the presence of God, the spirit of humility that comes down 
This is what Bruner says, not a strength that rises up. This is where our nature, our kingdom, our, our desire to assert our dominion and rule and control of our own lives is confronted with the kingdom of God. Where we are given an opportunity to choose, to control, and to influence, and to choose to assert, or to choose to walk in humility and gentleness and allow God to be the one who goes before us. Bruner says this, the remarkable office of the spirit is to nuance strength, to modulate power, and to deliver what is deeply needed in common and public life, the way of gentleness. That the Christian spirit is identified with a dove should have world historical significance. When the church grasps even a portion of the gospel's downward and dove-like message theologically, the humility of God and grace, and ethically, gentleness and nonviolence, the church will be in a stronger position than she now is under frequently nationalistic and so inevitably militaristic spirit. Christians are given power by the gift of the spirit in baptism, but it is dove power. And some of you are rippingly offended at what I just read and what I'm proposing. I want to bring you back to John chapter 11. When John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, look, man, are you really the Messiah? Because how you've been operating, how you've been conducting yourself and carrying yourself is not, it doesn't look like the Messiah that I pictured. It doesn't look like the leader who would liberate his people from oppression and destroy sinful structures and institutions. Jesus, you don't look like the kind of Messiah that I had in mind and Jesus said, Blessed are you if you are not offended by me. And some of you need to hear that today with this call to walk in humility and gentleness, that those would be the dominant characteristics that would characterize your interaction with others, that would characterize your Facebook and Instagram posts, that would characterize how you talk with your closest friends and family and neighbors, humility and gentleness. And some of you are offended at my suggestion even that there may be a different kingdom way than rising up and asserting strength and calling down leaders and name-calling police officers and doing all of these things may cause you offense. But I am here to tell you that the kingdom of God is characterized by humility and gentleness, not your power, not your strength, not the volume of your voice, but in lowering yourself and allowing God to be the one that speaks for and moves for and defends you, to be the one who works around you. And this is what Jesus was doing 
in that river that day. Jesus embodies what walking before God looks like. Humility, surrender, obedience, faithfulness. The dove embodies and redefines what the power of God looks like. Gentleness and coming down, resting upon. To be under the influence of the Holy Spirit is to be led downward into the service of persons and into the common ministries of life. Bruner says this, the evil one leads up. You shall be like gods. The Holy One leads down. You shall be everyone's servant. The whole ministry of Jesus proves this. Paul's ministry proves this too, as 2 Corinthians 12 especially shows. Just as Jesus begins to redefine what a Messiah is by his humble baptism with sinners, so the Holy Spirit begins to redefine who the Spirit of God is, and therefore what spiritual power coming down in force looks like. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, Although we are human, we do not wage war as humans do. We don't use the same tactics that everyone else uses. We don't rely on our intellect to uh, tear down arguments and opinions. We don't rely on the volume of our voice or our ability to overpower someone. We don't rely on our brute strength. We don't rely on those things that everyone else in the world relies on. This is what Paul is saying. We don't wage war as humans do. Even though we're human, we don't do it. Instead, we fight with spiritual weapons. And those spiritual weapons are humility and gentleness in the face of opposition, in the face of injustice. Doesn't mean inactivity. I'm not suggesting to you that you go and do nothing. What I am suggesting to you is your assumption of prayer is severely diminished in its power and effect, and therefore you and I We don't pray as fervently as we need to. We're not digging into the scriptures like we need to because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe it actually works. And so we resort to human mechanisms of power and strength to get our way and to accomplish what we think should be and must be accomplished in our life. But we see in this dove coming down, what the power of God looks like when it comes into being. And we see this all throughout Jesus's ministry. Jesus walked like a lion in the spiritual realm. He waged war in the spirit, but he walked with gentleness like a lamb with those that he was in contact with. Is your life characterized by humility and the gentleness of the dove. The power of God is released in gentleness and in humility. Finally, the voice of the Father. Before Jesus had done anything, before he had accomplished anything, before he was 
tested in the wilderness, before any of that happened, the voice of the Father says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. The Father gives identity, security, and attachment love to Jesus. Jesus was secure in his Father's love in himself and this and thus was able to withstand enormous pressure, Pete Scazzaro says. The Father gives Jesus a rooting of identity with which Jesus is able to stand firm against the pressures of those around him, the pressures of expectations on his life, religiously and politically and socially. By this point in his life, he disappointed pretty much everyone he could disappoint. And yet his father still says that he loves him. Jesus is the living gospel and the living example of the character of humanity under the gospel of God. Scott McKnight says, then what is the gospel? We've called this series Matthew, the King Jesus Gospel. So what is the gospel? Scott McKnight says this in his book, The King Jesus Gospel. The idea of king and kingdom are connected to the original creation. This is why Matthew brings us back there in Matthew 1. God wanted the icons, Adam and Eve, to rule in this world, and they failed. So God sent his son to rule. As its King and Messiah and Lord, the Son commissions the church to bear witness to the world of the redemption in Jesus Christ, the true King, and to embody the kingdom as the people of God. The gospel is not just about salvation. That is obviously a key and essential part. The gospel is the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation. It is the story that Jesus fulfills. It's the vision of God for humanity that Jesus himself fulfills. It's the story of Jesus conquering sin and death and making a way for us, not just to be right with God, which is essential, but making a way for us to recapture God's vision and purpose for your life and my life, the purpose that he's uniquely given you to rule and reign with him on the earth in his authority and in his power today. Paul says it in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that although we are living in this fallen world, we are not under the power of sin and death any longer, that because of what Jesus did, we've been liberated from that, we've been freed from that, and you don't have to live in your defeated cycles of sin and regret and shame and remorse over and over and over again. The power of Jesus has set you free if you're willing to walk in it, but walking in it begins with humility and gentleness. How we walk with other people will set the stage for how we can walk in freedom with God. So here are some questions for reflection. I haven't meant to upset any of you or to offend any of you. I'm sure I did, and you can email me if you are. But I want you to ask this question. What do I need to learn about humility from Jesus' baptism? Go back to this story in Matthew 3. What do you need to learn about humility from this? Jesus didn't have to do it. He wanted to. 
He wanted to walk in obedience to his father. How many things in your life are you making excuses for? What do you attach that I don't have to do that statement to in your life? Are you always the one who needs the last word? Are you willing to practice not having the last word with those closest to you? Are you willing to practice not defending yourself, not arguing your position, not explaining yourself or justifying yourself? Are you willing to practice that? Are you willing to prefer others and their needs above you having your needs met? Are you willing to serve others? What do you need to learn about humility from this? Two, how can you practice this week walking in humility with those who are closest to you? Again, humility is not humility unless it is done with others. It can't be just vertical. It must be vertical and horizontal. Number three, third question for us this week. How does the power of God as a dove conflict with your view of the power of God or how you want to see God work in power in our government, in our churches, or in your own life? How does this dove manifestation of the spirit and presence and power of God conflicts with how you want God to work in power in the world around you. Last question, are you living with the same security of identity before God as Jesus had? Or what lies do you struggle with in relation to God and what he might think of you? Do you struggle to believe that God could fully love you knowing everything he knows about you? Do you struggle to believe that God actually um, has favor and, and desires for good in your life? Do you struggle to believe that you can please God with your life? Do you struggle to believe that you are uh, worth it, that you have great value, that God would move heaven and earth for you? Do you struggle to believe that God's plans for you are good, not because of what you've done or not because of how good you are, but because of who you are in him? These were the foundational principles that this story in Matthew chapter 3 that Matthew is trying to draw out for us. And I want to encourage you this week, go back and read Matthew 3. Next week we're moving into Matthew 4, so you can read that as well. But read Matthew 3 again. And in humility, come before God and say, God, what do you need to teach me? about your way of humility and gentleness? How am I asserting my own power over my life? Or how do I want you to work in power in my life and in the world around me? And what do I need to lay down? What uh, opinions do I have about how things should be that I need to surrender to you? Can I challenge you in your life today that you and I together we need to surrender, humble ourselves and surrender our expectation of what God must do, how he must do it or when he must do it. 
And then we need to walk in humility and gentleness with others as the expression of that humility before God. 